Welcome back to another Sound Truth interview. I'm your host, Adam Miller, and today I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Benjamin Glad, who's written a book on the Gospel of Luke. It's called From the Manger to the Throne, A Theology of Luke. It's a resource that I'm excited to get into, especially as it's our theme to break down this gospel, to understand it in all its components and all its interwoven parts as we explore it over the course of this new year. So, uh, Dr. Glad, thank you so much for being a part of the many voices for that one message and joining us on the broadcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to a good conversation. Yeah. Well, get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, because obviously you're a professor, you are steeped in theology and the Word of God in teaching the New Testament. It gives us a little bit of a background as to your position and what led you to writing this book. Yeah. So I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I teach New Testament here. I've been here going on 11 years, which is hard to believe. I started uh, January 1st of 2012. And um, it's gone by so fast. You know, it's just like marriage when you have a, a, a good job, a good relationship, the days just fly by. So it's really felt probably more like four or five years. It has not felt like 11. And um, before that, I was a pastor for a couple of years. And before that, I taught at Wheaton College. And before that, I was a Wheaton College student for several years from 2000, uh, really from 2001 to 2008. And um, so here it is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living the dream. It's, this, is, this is an exciting thing. I, I love what I do, and I love the people uh, who are around me. Yeah, well, teaching the next generation of scholars and Bible teachers and pastors the Word of God, obviously you are in a crucial position to give them a foundation in which they build their understanding and their ministries off of. And teaching them the New Testament obviously gives you a little insight into the the, the Gospel of Luke in particular as a, a great foundation to talk about the Gospel and the Kingdom of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, that... Uh, there's one gospel, but we have four accounts of it. And so they don't tell us four Jesuses and four resurrections. It's, uh, it's, it's one gospel, but it's so rich and so dynamic. We have four tellings of that. Mm-hmm. And Luke is special in the sense that uh, it's so rich, it's so robust, and it has a strong clarifying statement as to why it's being written. Uh, It's really a matter of cataloging all of the events in the best way possible to make sure that we know the true story of the gospel. That's exactly right. Yeah, Luke is one of two gospels that gives us a, a purpose statement. We don't always get purpose statements in the Bible, and when we do get them, we need to pay attention he tells us, Luke tells us, uh, that he writes his gospel for Theophilus so that he may know, and then I love this, the certainty of the things Theophilus has been taught. Mm. So Theophilus, probably a Gentile, uh, maybe even a Jewish proselyte. It's hard for us to tell, but he at least he he appears to be have been a he appears to be a Christian. And he knows about the broad the broad contours of Jesus' life, death, and ministry. We don't know how he was converted. We don't know who told him. He, uh, but he he knows Luke apparently. And, but Luke is going to write this account. He's going to write Luke the the gospel and Acts. And here the gospel section is he Luke does so so that he may know what for certain that what he has heard is accurate. Isn't that an amazing thing? In other words. For Christians who struggle with doubt, 
We all do to some degree, but for Christians that struggle with doubt and struggle with, is Jesus who he claims to be? Is he is he who other people tell me to be? Well, hey, the Gospels are for you. It's amazing. There are very few people who doubt their salvation who are steeped in the Gospels themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, and especially when you're looking at the context of when sort of the timeline of the Gospel of Luke was written, and the fact that there are already three other ones, um, it, you have to ask the question, why is Luke writing this one? Obviously, we have his purpose statement, uh, but also to a generation that is is growing up to where they, they wouldn't have been first uh, encounters with Jesus, right? These are individuals who were, their faith is going to be um, built on the, the teaching of the apostles, these Gospels that are recorded of, of Christ's ministry. Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. Um, the Gospels, one of the reasons why they're written is obviously to tell Christians about Jesus and to tell unbelievers about Jesus. But one of the things that's happening is that in the at this time in the church, uh, the eyewitnesses are dying off. And uh, the words are recorded. Luke investigates. He tells us that he investigates. He tells us that he interacts with these eyewitnesses. And he puts them down into writing so that the gospel can be retained and memorized and uh, proclaimed throughout the uh, uh, Mediterranean world the, the for all the nations. Hmm. And what makes Luke unique? I mean, we've all heard the story that he was a physician, you know, so uh, he wasn't one of the apostles. So what makes him no. unique? And how does he, the one that's writing this, the longest of all of the gospels? Yeah, so why does he do this? Well, we explained why he does it so that Theophilus may know for certain that what he has heard is indeed true. Uh, How does he? Well, he tells us, Luke also tells us that he uh, apparently has other, he has other accounts uh, that he he has used. In fact, it says in verse one, many have, one, one, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. He's probably at minimum talking about mark he likely has mark's gospel in hand at this point and that's how he drafted portions of it and he may even have matthew in hand as well one could argue in fact many do argue that luke is the last of the three written and so we he may be talking about mark and matthew here and um and he, in in addition, in addition, he is going to supplement Matthew and Mark with other accounts, with other. So now remember, in Acts, it appears as though Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. In fact, if we look in Paul's writings, we can see that, wait a minute, Luke is a friend of Paul. Yeah, so he learned this information by traveling, by interviewing, by researching. This would have taken, the last event recorded in Acts is AD 62. Hmm. So that's going to be... That's going to be, that's that's the last event. But apparently, Luke has traveled extensively, interviewed many, many people, written portions of it down, likely memorized conversations, had other people write things down. And now here he is, and he has spent a, an amazing amount of time. Luke is the longest book of the New Testament, believe it or not. And uh, Luke-Acts combined, if we were to combine both of these books, which apparently they were published at the same time, uh, if we were to combine both of these, it takes up roughly a third of the New Testament. It's right around a third or a quarter. I'd have to run the numbers again, but it's it's massive what what Luke has 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 given to the church. Mm, it's incredibly significant. It's and, very significant. We don't know. I mean, imagine if we didn't have the Book of Acts. Yeah, 
it's it's almost so significant that it's almost impossible to to overlook and the details that it contains uh, one of those details that i think is really important is it, the narrative of the incarnation it's very different than the other gospels if it's you know luke is the gospel we go to whenever we tell the christmas story what makes that so unique yeah so two things um i argue that luke's gospel can be seen through two two verses in fact both of these verses are in the hymns now the first one in the magnificat well that's one that people are most familiar familiar with especially there uh, at the end of chapter one uh where mary says he god has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble luke 2 opens with what caesar augustus he demands he requires that everybody uh, uh, register, uh, he takes a, a census so that he can as, essentially tax them and uh, put Israel under the Roman thumb. But notice the contrast with Caesar doesn't say that he's in his palace, but the idea is that he, it does say that he's Caesar Augustus, which is a very, it's a majestic, it means a majestic one, the very elated term, very the preeminent one. He's very strong and mighty, and he sits upon this throne that he was here ruling the Roman Empire in all of his wealth and power. And then what do you have? The birth of the true king. And how is it? And how is his birth? It's so humble that even the relatives, like the relative of Mary and Joseph, of, or at least of, of Joseph, doesn't even have room for them, so they have to stay in the animal quarters, likely on the first floor, and that there's no uh, proper bed for Jesus, that he has to what sleep in this animal trough, and then he's in these, it's, it's, it's a very poor environment. Uh, Mary and Joseph, they don't even have, uh, ha- have the financial means uh, to offer a proper sacrifice, as it were, they have to offer up a sacrifice with using pigeons. So the whole point, this whole point is that notice the strong tra- contrast between Jesus' humble birth and then the status of this great Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And then, but by the end, but by the end of the account, what happens there? Caesar Augustus off the scene. The guy dies. Um, at that point and then here we are jesus he starts off in a manger and at the cross he even goes even lower than the angel into hell itself as it were to what in the resurrection and then the ascension to the very throne of god so you talk about god bringing down rulers all the rulers whether it's satan or caesar augustus or herod or any of those he brings them down and what does he do to his son he humbles him brings him down into the depths, but then he exalts him on account of his faithfulness and wherein he sits on the very throne of the Father. Isn't that neat? What a way, what a ray, what a way to read Luke and Acts together. Yeah. I think I find it so significant that the the Christmas story here is so robust in Luke and it is such an introductory. We're often most familiar with it, especially whenever Christmas comes around. We we hear that what it was that one Peanuts character that always reads uh, right. the, uh yes. Luke two. Uh, <laughs> but as you're saying that it is a sort of preface to the the gospel of Luke, just as the introduction to the book of Acts is sort of a preface to the rest of Acts. It really is a preface statement. It's it's kind of laying out the structure of the rest of the book. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So I call it a vertical. It's it's Luke's vertical concern. Those in high positions, those will be humbled. Those in low positions, they will be exalted. So you really have this strong vertical concern about people coming. Those who are high, they come down. Those who are low, they are exalted. I mean, even think about the narrative with Zacchaeus. We know that little song, and Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? So he climbs up into a sycamore tree for all he wanted to see. And so even we have, oddly enough, Zacchaeus's stature mentioned. We typically don't get authors telling us how tall people are. Yeah. Well, and I think it's because partly, partly it's because uh, uh, Zacchaeus is a very lowly character. He is a he is a tax collector. He every nobody likes tax collecting. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't like paying my taxes, and <laughs> and especially in the ancient world for a variety of reasons. But here is Zacchaeus. Nobody likes the guy. A short guy. You talk about a humble like this guy. It not, it's not looking very good for him. But what does he do? He trusts in Jesus. He follows Jesus. And what happens? I think he's exalted there. In fact, he even says that he stands up. And I think just it's just an amazing point in the narrative where he even have uh, the most despised people are God. It God exalts them. Mm. And I think in Luke in particular, what's significant about the story of Zacchaeus is how it is tied in in parallel with the rich young ruler. And you talk about mm-hmm. that as well in the book, where there's exactly there's this right. contrast. Luke puts those two side by side, where the other gospels separate them a little bit. But there's there's a contrast being drawn by Luke throughout this gospel. And you start even yes. in, the, in the narrative yeah. of the initial story, right? That's exactly right. So you the, again, this is gener- generally so the rulers in Luke's gospel, whether it's uh, political rulers, whether it's religious rulers. Uh, I mean, unless they don't uh, identify themselves with Jesus and trust in him and follow him, which is generally not the case among that class, um, God God demotes them. And so we see that strikingly, right? So you have the, these, so you have a uh, a very elite person in in the Jewish world in Israel at the time contrasted with a very despised person, Zacchaeus. And so what happens? Their fates are inverted. Mm. I love this. Even you start off with the story of Hannah and Mary, uh, that mm-hmm. contrast. Uh, you see that throughout the entire book and these individuals with names and personal accounts that Luke is going to be able to get their eyewitness testimonies. He's he's naming names. He's uh, he's calling people out. He's he's pretty poignantly getting all the details in order. Yes, that's correct. Um, Jesus often... So let me back up. Richard Bauckham argues, he argued a long a long time ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, he has this wonderful book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And in that, he's kind of building off other, other studies, but in that he realizes that, or he recognizes that there are there's an entire group of individuals in the Gospels, in all four Gospels, who should not be named. For example, Zacchaeus. Let's just go back to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, he is a he's a fairly important figure in in Luke. But why is he named? He's not. He's he's probably not publicly known, at least outside of his circles. Or Zacchaeus, we also have outside of Luke, um, or let's say uh, Anna the prophetess, 
or Simeon, these other characters, we have, they are named. Where on the other hand, we've got a whole slew of characters who are unnamed. And so scholars have tried to figure out why do we get some names and not other names? And so what Bauckham argues, and I think he's very good here, he says, the reason why we get names is because that's where the evangelists got their source material from. Luke interviewed Zacchaeus. Luke may have interviewed Anna, obviously not Simeon because Simeon was dead, but maybe, but likely uh, Mary and Joseph could have told that narrative to you know a variety of people. Whatever. In other words, in other words, the gospel writers are showing you the the sources of their material, and it was possible that uh, the that those maybe even some of the first readers of the gospels could have gone back and Bachum talks about this have. It would have been possible to go back and to hunt down Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, tell us about your encounter with the risen with with the Lord at that time. So these are kinds of the 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 kinds of things that really stand out in the gospels once you start to read them rightly. Mm. I think about how significant that narrative is that there were eyewitness accounts. And uh, we obviously can't go back uh, 2,000 years and talk to these individuals, but we're given them in record form. That's what Luke is committed to. But even in the epistles, I'm thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 or even 1 John, where John is talking about having touched and been there and been with Jesus as a reassurance to those who would come after, uh, the sort of the descendants of Thomas and some that, that believe without seeing are reassured by the witnesses and their accounts. That's correct. You know, Adam, it, it, this is a remarkable thing. In fact, we we bank our, our salvation on this very line of reasoning. Jesus did not write any books. I mean, theologically, he wrote them all. I get it. But but <laughs> he, he, he did not author any books physically. So instead, we get accounts by those who testified about him, who testify, who saw him, who interacted with him. And we also have accounts specifically here of now Luke and Mark and the author of Hebrews. That would be these, these three books. They are associates of the apostles. So you really have a whole cluster. In fact, we have two books, James and Jude, that are written by Jesus's relatives. So you put all of the data together and it runs something like this. Those who saw Jesus, those who interacted with him and experienced him while he was on the earth uh, or those who are associated with those who did, they wrote about him. In fact, we trust our salvation that what they did when they testified about Jesus, that they were right, that they were accurate and that they bore and that they still do bear a hundred percent accurate witness. In other words, our salvation lies in their testimony. And that's a really, really important point that Paul, he bore witness to the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He is commissioned. So what Paul says is true, and Paul needs to be accurate about that as well. So do you see this whole line of this, this, the entire New Testament is based upon something very fundamental, and that is testifying to the risen Christ. And as far as an apologetic goes, that's one of the most compelling arguments to the 
the uh, truth of the claims of Christianity, that Christ actually did die, that he was buried, and that he rose again, because there were so many eyewitness accounts, and they died, they were persecuted for their faith. And Luke's testimony, having followed the Apostle Paul, I can uh, say that he probably saw the value of that witness, of the veracity of those claims that really rang true amongst the those believers in the various regions that would never have been able to go travel and and meet the first first witnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, could you imagine uh, even listening to Paul unpack the Old Testament? And it may have been even Paul, some of, may perhaps even some of Paul's insights where Luke learned some of those same insights too. So that when he told his story of Christ, that he was like, okay, Paul showed me, kind of Paul put his finger on on here, I'm in, and I'm going to do the same, or he could, that could have very well have happened. Hmm. Looking at this story and trying to tell the theology of the Gospel of Luke, it's a different approach than what we typically get in commentaries and uh, sermons. So explain to us a little bit about what you mean when you're writing the theology of Luke. Is this yeah, a theological so I, textbook? I, right. So I, I mentioned in the beginning that this is not the theology of Luke. This is a theology of Luke. I, you know, I don't know if it is even possible to write the theology of Luke just because it's so rich. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, 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 I don't know. The, I don't think I could do it, but um, this is a line. This is a line of or uh, let me. This is an attempt of pulling the pulling together some of Luke's major themes, right? So to write the theology of Luke would be able to take all of his threads and bind all of the threads together to produce like this single theology. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to take some of these major threads and just show, hey, here's a thread. Here's a thread. Here's a thread. This is how these three or four threads are then tied together um you know it's hard it's hard to do that adam because you've got to keep reading it over and over again and you just you start seeing the same word or maybe not just word but the same concept or and then you watch how the characters work together and so it's just a and then the hardest part which i think makes luke exceptionally difficult here is that you've got acts what to do with acts and since i didn't write the volume on acts patrick schreiner wrote that and did a good job. I don't, I, I, I feel like, I feel like in some sense, my book is incomplete because of Acts. Like I, uh, you know, it really should be a theology of Luke and now a theology of Acts because the, the, the story that Luke begins, he finishes in Acts. And so you got to really read these two uh, books together. However, you know, I did the best that I can and I could. And, um, I love I love Luke. I think it's a terrific it's a terrific book. I mean, all the books of the Bible are amazing, but it really is it really tells an amazing story. Hmm. We've already talked a little bit about the the theme of the kind of upside down kingdom, which is there in Luke and the the rulers that are brought down and the rulers uh, that, that are brought up. But you also talk about this theme of peace on earth, um, and that's obviously drawn right from the Christmas narrative. It's what the angels declare, right? Christ has come to bring peace on earth. Um, that is such an attractive quality. I'm sure many of our listeners are drawn to. It's what Christmas is all about, and yet it's something it's hard and to grasp in a world that is mm. falling apart, especially in the world that Jesus ultimately mm-hmm. suffered and died. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So one thing, one thing that I noticed, Adam, is as as you rightly recognized in Luke two, the whole peace on earth. It's an odd, it's an odd announcement, right? Just declaring peace on earth. Well, what does that mean? Why is peace such a major theme there in Luke two? And then if you start to trace that out, we really start to see it come back around at the triumphal entry. We have the pilgrims declaring now peace in heaven. And then the third use of that language is found at the very end of the account in Luke 24 with the disciples. Uh, Jesus then declares uh, peace, you know, peace, peace upon them, peace upon you. And you start to put all these pieces together. You then start to see, wait a minute, there is a whole theme of peace. And so I try to argue, why is peace a big deal in Luke? How is it tied to the angels? How? Why do we have peace on earth? And then why do, why do, we, have, why do we have peace in heaven? And then why do we have peace at the end? And so really the whole idea is that before Christ's coming, uh, this world, both physically and spiritually, it's a broken world and there is not peace. Uh, what Luke is going to do, Luke is going to spend more time talking about the brokenness of the spiritual realm and how Christ has come to kind of glue that together, to put that back together. And he's going to do so through his victory over the devil and the demons. And so that then creates peace in a very cosmic and spiritual way. And it allows what that does is why is that a big deal? Because you need peace in an environment in which God lives. God cannot dwell in a place where there is unrest. He cannot Mm -hmm. dwell with people where his people are divided. So God has to secure peace so that his presence can move in and he can inhabit people and he can inhabit a cosmos that is now in a peaceful condition. So that's why in the new creation, there's going to be 100% peace, peace in our hearts, peace in the location, peace among the animals, it's 100% peace. And so Jesus has begun that process of a peaceful reconciliation. Hmm. I like in that. Luke, in Luke, Luke spends more time on this than any other gospel. Yeah. I like that you mentioned that reconciliation component because that is the ultimate peace that we need. Uh, we're looking for a peace on earth between the kingdoms of man, but this is a peace that you're talking about, a peace with God, and God is the ultimate one we need peace with. That's exactly right. You know, it's easy It's easy to say we need to pursue peace with one another, whether raci- racially or otherwise. Amen. We need that, but there's something else that's that's not in the background. That's actually in the foreground, and that is we've got an even bigger problem than a racial divide. We have got a creator and created divide, and we are rebellious. We are sinners, and we need to be reconciled to God, not reconciled to us, but we need to be reconciled to God. There is enmity, so the Bible likes to use the word enmity, Uh, between these two parties. And so Jesus, as the great media, the reconciler, he has come to bring peace to us. He doesn't need peace. We need the peace. Mm. So uh, Christ has brought that, uh, graciously brought that. And so he establishes peace. Those who trust in him, follow him. Um, They are the ones who are, to whom God is at peace with. And that then, once we are then reconciled to God and God creates us, he gives us a new heart. Now that we have new hearts, guess what we can do? Now we can be at peace with one another. 
But we can't be at peace with one another without being first at peace with God. Mm. And that's such a crucial component to have, because within the kind of pomp and circumstance of the Christmas season, when we hear peace on earth, what are we thinking? We're thinking about what's happening in in, uh, in the Eastern Europe, right? We're talking about what's exactly happening right. in Africa. We're happening what's happening in America. But ultimately, the <clears throat> peace that's being talked about in the Gospel of Luke is a peace between God and man. That's exactly right. You know, think about uh, what, one thing that I recognized uh, in working on this this little book, I recognized how Luke is so sensitive to the first chapters of Genesis, whether it's illusions and there are just lots of reasons why, but he's very sensitive and especially to the first nine chapters of Genesis. And when you read the first nine chapters of Genesis, guess what? Guess what jumps out? We're not at humanity's not at peace. Humanity is at war with each other. Humanity is at war with God. It, it's it's massive chaos there after chapter three, all the way through really chapter eleven, and Luke is very sensitive to that. So Luke is going to say there is now one on the scene to whom the Old Testament longed for and has awaited for. He is now a new Adam, a new Israel who has come to reverse those conditions. And to be faithful when they were unfaithful. And now Jesus, as the true uh, true Israel and the last Adam, he is now doing what the first Adam and the, uh, and the nation failed to do, and that is to obey God. And so as a result of Jesus' obedience, now we get the peace. Do you see? He can't achieve peace without obedience. He's got to obey the Father. He has to obey the law. He's got to be faithful when he is faithful, then the peace is achieved. And that's why, this is amazing, and that's why we don't get Jesus declaring peace until chapter 24. It's finally, that is now Jesus in his resurrected state, his exalted state, that now he can say, I have achieved cosmic peace, because he has to die, and he has to rise again, and finally, he can now say, I have brought peace. On account of my obedience, I have now brought peace. He can't, he can't bring peace before then. Hmm. For any of our listeners who um, are looking forward to this year, we're going to be delving into the Gospel of Luke and unpacking it, along with uh, uh, looking at the Book of Acts as a as they come together as one piece. What advice do you have for our listeners in reading through the Gospel of Luke, reading the familiar stories, maybe stories they've read multiple times before, but how to see them with fresh eyes and see them as distinctive in the Gospel of Luke? That's a great question. Uh, One thing, I mean, I have lots of things, so here's one thing. (laughs) So Luke, Luke quotes the Old Testament 30 times. It's a little over 30 times. Every time you see an Old Testament quotation, underline it, maybe write it down, take a couple minutes, go back to the Old Testament context, try to read it, and then figure out, okay, why is Luke quoting the Old Testament here? Try to put the pieces together. I do that for the readers a little bit in my book. Uh, There are entire studies, many, many studies on this idea of, of Luke's use of the Old Testament but that's really one of the most rewarding ways to to read Luke. Let me explain why that's so important. Because he says, now remember, at the beginning of his gospel, Luke says this. He says, many, likely here he's talking about the uh, Matthew, he's, he's probably talking about Mark, maybe Matthew. Many have undertaken 
to draw up an account of the things. In other words, there are other accounts of Jesus, but look at how he describes. He doesn't say on account of Jesus. He goes, an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, he's reading Jesus's life as fulfilling Old Testament events. In other words, he he is going to, Luke is going to demonstrate how all of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his resurrection, and most of all, his ascension fulfills the entire sweep of the Old Testament. That's the major lens with which Luke is uh, working. So as you read Luke, you've got to take note of all of these Old Testament connections. He quotes the Old Testament over 30 times and alludes to the Old Testament hundreds of times, if not more than that. We, you, we, we may be working with 400, 500, 600 allusions just in Luke. I mean, it's, it's, it's an expansive treatment of the Old Testament. It really is. Mm. It's a rich gospel, and it's a reminder that the interconnectivities of all of Scripture and how it leads and culminates ultimately in the work of Christ. And uh, Luke's treatment, even of the final week, uh, the triumphal entry and his sufferings, really gives us an insight into this whole story that is leading to that point. It's leading to the fulfillment of all of those prophecies in the work of Christ. Yeah, so at the end... And I'm glad you brought that up, Adam. So at the end of Luke, this is this is how Luke is going to put all the pieces together. You see, remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus? It's one of Luke's most well-known stories. It's it's unique to his book. And it's there when Jesus is walking. Remember with those two disciples? And they don't know who Jesus is. So they start telling him, Oh, you know, he's just this, he's just this traveler. Oh, hey. There's this guy named Jesus. He did these things. He's a prophet. He's great and this and that. What they say is true, but it's not the whole story. They see it like 20%. And then what does Jesus say? He looks at them. He says, oh, my goodness, you guys, you don't understand, do you? You don't understand who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament. And it says, and then Jesus then unpacks. This is amazing. He unpacks his own ministry in light of the Old Testament. And it says in the beginning with Moses and then all through the prophets, he then puts all of the pieces together. And then we get the same formula when Jesus interacts with the other remaining disciples. And then finally at the end, what he's trying to basically, in other words, at the beginning of the gospel, Luke says, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. And now at the end of the story, did Luke do that? Yes, he did. In fact, he's going to use the character Jesus to validate and actually vindicate his own message so that Jesus himself becomes the great interpreter of the Old Testament. And he's basically saying, you've got to read the whole thing in light of what I've done. The whole thing, not just a couple of pieces, all of it. I think your book does that so well because I think a lot of our listeners are saying, well, that's a huge task. If it's all of Scripture, you mean I have to have that whole background? i got to read all 65 books before I can read <laughs> Luke, uh, be able to make sense of it. Uh, you don't, but you start with Luke, and your book does a great job at unpacking about how all of that kind of ties in together. So any of our listeners who might be overwhelmed, uh, could you reassure them that uh, how you've structured your book can provide them some help, some ways to see things perhaps they haven't seen before 
that will tie them all together in a way that brings a cohesion to their understanding of the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, I that's again that's 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 a great that's a great question uh, or comment, whichever one is. Uh, it 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 there's when I write, especially for a crossway series such as this, I want to keep the volume accessible. However, I kind of want to put. I want to give it some meat too, so that even you're uh, someone who's been a Christian for their entire life and is maybe in their 70s and 80s, that there'd be something in there for them. On the other hand, I would want my my kids to be able to read this when they get a little bit older. So I'm trying to do both things with it is present the Old Testament clearly, Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament clearly, yet have some depth to it. So I'm going to do that through kind of the major facets of Luke. And we've talked about his vertical concern. We've talked about the peace. There's also another, the fact that Jesus' favorite title is the Son of Man. It's an exceptionally difficult title, and it's so tied to what Jesus does and did. So I try to unpack that and relate it to Jesus. Um, There are other things such as the Exodus and this whole second Exodus thing or Isaiah's new Exodus that is such a humongous part of what Jesus is doing. In fact, remember at the transfiguration when it says that Jesus was talking to uh, Moses and Elijah, it says about in the English translations, they'll say something like about his departure or they use that word, their departure, but Jesus, but the word there is Exodus. So Luke is saying that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his Exodus because Luke sees Jesus life and death in resurrection as an exodus account that is jesus his, his he, he he goes into captivity on the cross and then when he rises again he's now into new life he's now uh, in, moving into the promised land and those who trust in him well they also experience that exodus as well and that's uh, yeah it's this whole it's this whole paradigm that luke is so insistent on mm. For any of our listeners who are interested in exploring more of this, um, your book obviously is a great resource. It will unpack some major themes in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm excited. Uh, Over the course of this new year, we're going to be pouring into the Gospel of Luke as well, and this book will be a great starting point for a lot of our listeners. With that being said, could I ask you to pray for our listeners and end our new year as we explore Luke and his writings, both Luke and Acts as a foundation for our studies. Yes, I'd love to. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for Luke, for this gospel that he wrote and how it challenges us, it encourages us, it increases our faith so that we may know for certain the things that we have learned, that we may indeed be built up in our faith. For those who are doubting, May they read Luke's volume afresh and may be convinced that Jesus is indeed the one he claimed he is and the one that Luke and the apostles proclaim. And we say these things for your glory. Amen. Amen. We've been talking with Dr. Benjamin Glad about his book. It's called From the Manger to the Throne. 
a theology of Luke, and an excellent resource, especially as we delve into this book over the course of the year. We want to challenge you to have that foundation and to understand the major movements and themes of the Gospel of Luke, and later on, uh, we'll even look into the, the book of Acts as well. So, uh, Ben, I can't thank you enough. This book is a great resource and a great starting point for us as a community, but also thank you for the time that you have to talk to us and to unpack a lot of these themes with us. Yes, thank you so much for your time. I'm very appreciative of it.